Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We believe that leadership is the most significant lever to creating a vibrant future. We help leaders evolve and innovate their organizations. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also a fellow with the International Leadership Association. I'm delighted that today we are joined by Greg Moran, the COO of AWARE. And we're going to be talking about when people scale businesses, the challenging aspects that they don't often talk about. So, Greg, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm happy to be here. And thanks again for having me back. This is fun. My background, I would guess I would characterize myself as a recovering corporate executive. I spent a lot of time in large companies running global engineering for Ford on the application development side and working at companies like Bank One and Nationwide Insurance. But a few years ago, pivoted to a startup. We're five years in and we're just uh, finished up a C round and the company's scaling very nicely. And I'm also on the board of a couple of other startups in ag tech and in med tech. So I've really pivoted my career pretty dramatically. And it's been the best decision I've ever made in terms of my professional development and learning, as well as just the satisfaction and being part of helping build businesses instead of helping other people run theirs. So when businesses begin to scale, there are challenges to consider. And Greg joins me today to talk about topics that are often not addressed in scaling businesses such as back office processes and tooling, hiring and diversity, space, culture, ESG, people, keeping the value chain in balance, pricing and value creation. I think it's just an important conversation to be having, right? I think a lot of startups, and I've now both as a board member and an advisor, as well as a leader inside of a startup, you often hear the stories of great success at the end of the great success. And there's not as much attention paid to kind of the nitty gritty day-to-day decisions and trade-offs that you have to make as you're going through those processes of growing and scaling a company. And I just thought it might be fun to have like a really pragmatic conversation about how do you think about those things that require investment of people and money and time? And when do you make those investments relative to how fast you're scaling? I'm living it. So it's kind of fun. These are very prescient questions for us. We're dealing with them every single day right now. And I thought trying to remember how it felt four years from now, if somebody wants to talk to me about it, is not the same as, yeah, yet last week we made this decision and here's why and how we made it. And we are smaller in the economic scale, but also asking similar questions with a new COO about two months in making a lot of changes to back office and accounting firms. and Exactly. And you spend time with your clients all the time. So I think it'd be a good dialogue to get your perspective from companies that you've worked with and said, well, you know, like I was just talking to a client the other day about that, right? <laughs> and just let's have it be practical and really grounded in the reality versus what I think often is the glorified version after you've had great success Nobody wants to say, oh, yeah, that was brutal and we had to do this or do that. They just want to create the picture that it all went well. And I promise you, it never all goes well. Yeah, it's kind of like an ERP implementation. It's brutal. In the middle of it, it's brutal. At the end, it may go well. So let's start with scaling the back office. How do you balance investment in technology and process ahead of the need for that technology and process? 
Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm I'm the chief operating officer. So this is kind of like the sweet spot of what I'm accountable for within the company. And the way I've always phrased it is I never want the back office to be on the critical path for the growth of the company. And so there is a balance there, right? And what that means is I need to have in place the scaffolding for the company across all the back office processes that we need for the next stage of the company. But I probably can't afford to invest in the scaffolding for two stages out. So it's not I make a decision and I'm always ahead. It's that I've got to be balancing out when do we make those investments relative to the capital that we have and we're deploying. It's not our money. We're spending other people's money. And so we try to be really thoughtful about that. By the same token, I don't want to sit in a board meeting and explain how we're in the way of our own growth because we didn't convert to a new accounting system in time, or we were using some pathetic piece of CRM software and we probably should have been on Salesforce for a while and we don't have the integration we need to be able to invoice our customers' time. I mean, you can think of hundreds of examples of that. And so for me, it's that thinking about, okay, how steep is the curve? Right. And how much scaffolding has to be put in place to make sure that for the foreseeable future, which in the startup world, anything beyond six months starts to be sort of ludicrous in the ABC, maybe even D round sort of stages. Yeah, you put together plans, but everybody knows they're made up. It's just part of the game that gets played in the startup world is we'll put together a forecast and it's really a test of whether or not you know how to explain your business model and that you have some discipline around how you make money, but nobody believes the numbers beyond about six months, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're really anticipating what do the next six months look like and where would we be then and what needs to be in place to allow us to grow. And I don't know if you're having those same thoughts about your business. Actually, as you're talking, I'm thinking of a client who has not been one step ahead. They're one step behind and they're doing really good work now. They just brought in a high profile CFO who is pushing the increase of sophistication they're implementing an ERP, they, they're changing all of their underlying systems, but they would say it's probably two years too late or two years behind when it should have been. So they have ended up diverting a lot of energy to fixing stuff rather than making the investment at the point in time where in retrospect should have been done. Yeah. And there's some interesting balancing acts, particularly on the people side. So you're raising an interesting point. You know, when you're a hundred people, you would love to be able to hire the HR leader or the finance leader mm -hmm. that would be the right person for when you're 800 people. But you're not going to be able to attract that person very often. Occasionally, you'll find somebody who really believes in what you're doing. They often have had some previous success, and so they aren't overly indexed on near-term return. But for the most part, you struggle to mm -hmm. attract the talent you need for two stages out, right? And so you are facing this reality, and it happens all the time in the startup world. And in fact, savvy people that you're talking to that are candidates for these jobs will ask you and say, okay, so you're not bringing me in as, you know, as a CFO, you're bringing me in as a VP of finance. Does that mean when you get to 500 people, you're going to bring in somebody over my head? And the answer is maybe. And you've got to be honest about that. Like some people can make that transition, but particularly when you're growing fast, it gets harder and harder for you to find somebody who has that kind of professional scalability that they can ride through stages that quickly. It's been interesting with this same client I'm talking about. 
when they were smaller and had less financial resources, they did attract the best people they could attract. Now they're larger and more successful, still relatively small and significantly upscaled their people. And it's been an interesting experience to watch how the legacy employees who are still there and still really valued respond to being layered or losing parts of their jobs. Even if they were working 80 or 90 hours a week, they still fight to keep the thing in some cases. Others are so grateful they can let the thing go. But how folks navigate that has been a really interesting experience for the company. Absolutely. Not everybody can adapt like that. But we start with the premise of you start with the truth. If you lose trust with your team on any dimension, any dimension, it doesn't have to be about their career, but it could be about policy or it could be about whether or not the company's doing as well as you say it's doing. So transparency and trust, we find, is the bedrock. If you mislead somebody, they're definitely going to struggle with the trip. Right. But if you say objectively, here's where we are, here's why we're doing what we're doing, here's why we now have to specialize more, because there used to be two things to do in that domain. There's now 20, and we need somebody who has experience with the new level of scale to be able to help all of us be effective. And so it starts with the truth. I think if you mislead people, or you know, blow sunshine at them, you erode that trust. And then your ability to have kind of a thoughtful conversation with them about why they're now going to have somebody between them and the CEO or between them and the COO gets eroded because they don't believe you. Like everything else, trust is the currency of how you keep high engagement when you go through change. And the other word you used was transparency, that people need to understand the thought process, even if they don't like it. For folks who weren't previously transparent, it's new behavior and it's not instinctive. Just that shift is challenging for people who haven't seen it modeled, aren't comfortable with it, aren't sure they trust each other. It is a negative reinforcing loop. I completely agree. And I think particularly for people who come out of the corporate world and then get into a smaller business or a startup, knowledge has been the currency of power for their whole career. And so one of the ways that we try to diffuse that is by democratizing knowledge. We try really hard to make sure there are very few secrets. There obviously are some things that have to be held in confidence, but it's usually for a very short period of time. And if you start with that premise of we're going to democratize the knowledge about the company, so a frontline SDR knows as much about what's going on in the company as the C-level executives do, you take power out of the equation because they all know. Actually, one of the conversations in a session this week was if we share information, they're going to share it with other people. And the counterpoint was, so what? Our competitors aren't so dying to copy what we are doing, and they don't have the culture and the systems and the special sauce that we do. So if I know what you're doing, it's not like it is so simple as I'm just going to copy it. Yeah, I mean, there are businesses where proprietary knowledge is significant, but certainly in the software world, it's execution. And execution comes from culture. It comes from transparency. It comes from good decision making. It comes from competence. It comes from all these things. But it's going to be about execution because software can be written. People don't even need to know how you're doing something to be able to replicate it because 
you can replicate it in software. And so we don't even look at that issue of proprietary information very much because it's really going to be about execution. And it does make me think of the other piece of it. And you were kind of alluding to this. The other currency of power is lines of communication. And one of the things that we emphasize on day one is there's no gatekeeping here. And it's interesting to watch people who've worked in other companies, even startups, like look at me with doubt. And you don't mean that. And I say, just to be clear, the org chart does not define our lines of communication. It doesn't matter who you report to. You have permission to talk to anybody in the company anytime. So here's an interesting case study again from this week. You have access to everyone and it is still appropriate to inform your boss when you've gone around them. Yeah, and we don't say that. Okay. We explicitly say you don't have to ask your boss or inform your boss. We trust the person that you're going to talk to to let your boss know if they think it needs to happen. We reverse it and put the responsibility on the person you're having the conversation with. So if our CEO is having a conversation with somebody who reports to me and he thinks I need to be aware of it, he comes and tells me, oh, hey, I had a conversation with somebody the other day. But if he doesn't feel that's necessary, I trust him to handle that inform whatever the information was. And I reinforce it all the time. And so does he. So if somebody comes to me and says, is it OK if I talk to Jeff? My immediate response is, of course it is, but it's not OK that you came to ask. So next time, just go talk to Jeff. How do you navigate the learning that needs to happen? And maybe it is the unique relationship that you and Jeff have. Because I'm thinking of this person continually going around very senior team to the board and the senior executive boss ends up just getting blindsided. It's the blindsiding that is, I'm going to communicate to your boss instead of you. Yeah, so that then is really about how you've trained your leaders and the board even on how to respond to a moment like that. Because the other side of the equation is if the issue is with respect to specifically me, so let's imagine somebody's talking to our CEO and says, I've got this feedback for Greg. The absolute first thing that our CEO is going to say is, have you told him? Because that's the obvious question. Mm -hmm. And then there's no blindsiding. Because if the answer is no, then the next question is, well, why not? Did he make it unsafe for you? Well, now we're in a completely different conversation mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with the feedback. It has to do with an issue where people feel intimidated or don't feel free to mm -hmm. share their thoughts, right? So I think that's a lot about having a leadership culture that knows how to respond to those moments in a way that eliminates the risk of the blindside. And, you know, we've had those moments where somebody is trying to blindside, but if you've got the right culture in place, you cut that off at the pass. Well, that's something that I know Greg would want to know about. So I can join you in that conversation, but my recommendation to you, because it would be better for your relationship with him, would be you just go talk to Greg. And then if he's not responsive or there's an issue or you can't don't feel like you can do your job, by all means, let's talk again. But that feels like a thing between you and Greg. To me, it's like building that culture that's also rooted in trust, that's also rooted in transparency. Yeah, because the dancing around one another at the risk of the other person just completely undermines the trust. 100%. We talk about those sorts of topics and what toxic looks like on day one of every employee's joining the company, mm -hmm. right? So it's we spend an hour going through a culture deck in detail and giving these types of examples and talking with nuance about it so that 
Everybody knows from day one, this is the culture. And we say, now that you know, you can hold us accountable to it. So if you're not seeing it, raise your hand and we'll address it. This is a different way of being than people have spent, in some cases, 20, 30 years in a corporate setting. This is different. Absolutely. And I do think, back to the conversation around scale, there are aspects of that that we're going to have to figure out how to scale that works pretty well with 100 Mm -hmm. people. At 500 people, is there a different way we talk about it without losing the underlying principle? Because at that point, not because we don't have the intent, but just the sprawl of the organization and the sort of physical distance and the potential sort of organizational distance that people will feel will create some natural barriers to it. You could imagine a world where we're at 500 people where somebody that would have historically been three levels away from the CEO is now five levels away from the CEO and they're working in a building that's five times the size as the one we had when we were 100 people and they've seen a video of Jeff and been in a meeting with him and 200 people a couple of times, but they don't feel a personal connection. Whereas today, there's definitely the sense of a personal connection. And so we'll have to think about, for me, for the CEO and for other key leaders, what are the things that have to change in our behavior that make us accessible, that make us approachable in a higher scale environment? And that will take time, energy, and technique. I'm thinking of a client, and this was from a few years ago, CIO client, large organization, and they were having skip level and couple skip level meetings. And someone went in and just unloaded on something that was really inappropriate to take to the CIO. And he managed to make himself look like he lacked judgment in a major way. The CIO came to me and said, why does that guy work here? There was still a risk to the employee who is just not yet savvy about what they bring to you or Jeff. I certainly go back to my corporate experience where I've had really large teams. You know, Ford, I had a team of 5,000 people spread across three continents. There are techniques that you can layer in to make yourself approachable. But I always took on the accountability. If I wasn't approachable, that was on me. Mm -hmm. Or if there was a significant issue that I had no visibility to and somebody was raising that issue, even in a forum that might not have been the most appropriate, that's also on me. That means I'm not creating the forums where people can raise those issues. And so they were left no choice but to bring up an engagement issue in an all-hands meeting because that's the only opportunity they felt they had. And they reached a point of frustration that they're like, okay, I know I'm not supposed to talk about this here, but I'm gonna. In this case, the person didn't know they weren't supposed to talk about it. That was the poor judgment piece. That moment, particularly if it's an issue that as you hear it resonates with you is it's probably real you're putting on a show for everybody that's in the room and it has to be about keeping it safe Mm -hmm. for for people to raise issues. And then there separately could be a coaching moment that says, right, here's why that might not have been the most appropriate forum, Mm -hmm. but I'd like to know why you thought it was. And then it's a conversation with them and you or however you want to do that. But in the moment, projecting on the organization that access is not determined by the forum. Access is not determined by the distance between us organizationally. At Ford, when my manager meeting was 300 people, it's hard to make that intimate. So I did it in the round. I would literally have the chairs set up in a circle so nobody was more than three people away from me. 
And then I would be in the middle of that. And when we were doing, even if I was speaking, but certainly when I was doing Q&A, you're going over and having a conversation with the person that's asking the question. And so it feels way more intimate, feels way more personal. And then I knew that person was going to feel a sense of connection to me. Versus being on a stage with a auditorium that you can't even see faces in the exactly, back. Exactly. Do you use people to compensate for the lack of tooling or process, or do you bite the bullet and get the stuff? Stuff being whatever, systems, people, more sophisticated process? It's an interesting question, and I think the answer to it has changed over the course of my career. In a world of software as a service platforms, the equation has kind of flipped upside down. It used to be that the capital investment to implement a new piece of software to run your company was substantial because there was no cloud-based services. Mm -hmm. You had to buy servers, you had to put it on your network, you had to upgrade your network, and you had to buy potentially upgraded devices for all your people. And so it became this cost-prohibitive sort of scenario. And in that world, we sort of developed this habit of, well, three people doing manual work is cheaper. And I don't think our decision-making has kept pace with what's changed in the actual mm -hmm. software world. The economy has flipped on that now. And usually, an adequate service is available to you, often free, and as you scale, usually very affordably on a pay-per-drink model. So now it's not CapEx, it's OpEx. OpEx yeah. You can manage that spend in proportion to your need to consume it. Mm -hmm. Right. So I still see, even at startups that probably should know better because they're often in that business, defer the investment in technology and tools to help mm -hmm. them scale and bring in an extra person or overload a person who's already overloaded with more responsibility. Just hold it together with bailing wire and toothpicks. And I tend to go the other way around and say, if I can put in place technology and process and mm -hmm. tools to minimize the need to make an investment in an additional person, and I get repeatability, auditability, and predictability mm -hmm. in that process, that's a better trade-off for me. This delusion that people are a variable expense drives bad decision-making. I understand the underlying principle that people are saying, I can get rid of people. The reality is we don't like to do that. And so, you know, the old adage that your fixed cost walks in the door on two feet every morning is way closer to the truth than we want to admit. And I don't want to be the company that views people as variable expense because that means you're a company that's willing to be unthoughtful about your decision making and affect people's lives because you weren't willing to think hard. I don't like to be that company or that leader. And so to me, I wanted to talk about this point because I think there is still a little bit of a bias for just pour it on top of people. And I think the bias needs to shift for let's find the right tooling because that'll make all of our people more productive and reduce the risk that we were talking about earlier in terms of auditability, predictability, and quality, all of those things, right? And with SaaS software, you're getting an unbelievable amount of capability for almost nothing. For a company of 25 people, you can sign up for Slack for free, and it's fine. Works really well. I mentioned we just got a new COO, and our board was already technology-heavy people. We have all kinds of software that we've used for free or almost free that five years ago wasn't available. Ten years ago, absolutely not available. 
Now, the, the dark side of that is as you grow in scale, you do have to manage the bloat in your underlying software infrastructure. And it does require some specific decision making that says, okay, we've got three pieces of software that overlap a bunch. We've got to rationalize that on some regular basis, say, and, and we do it kind of annually because we do a full review of all our vendors and it sort of forces us to look at that and go, okay. We got like four things doing the same thing. We've got to rationalize that a little bit, probably less from a cost standpoint and more really from a complexity standpoint. You know, if you've got Teams, Slack, Workplace by Facebook, and, uh, you know, WebEx teams, your people are going to be confused. When do we use which one? I was with a client last week and they're an international client. And that was one of the conversations. They've got Teams, they've got Slack, they've got WhatsApp. And the question was, when I try to message you, what do I use? And they still have email. So do I send my boss a message on four platforms or pick one? But it's been a real struggle because each person has a preference and it depends on which country. Right. And so I think you do have to be definitive in your culture about where your core collaboration platform is and then reinforce that behavior because for sure the organization will follow what the leaders do. You hope. Unless what the leaders are doing is stupid and irrelevant, (laughs) right? So let's be clear. Asking uh, millennials and Gen Z to use email is stupid. They didn't grow up with it. They hate it. It's ineffective for them. They don't even know how to use it well. For goodness sake, they don't even know what CC stands for, let alone having ever seen an actual carbon copy. So it's a ludicrous paradigm for a millennial or a Gen Z employee to say we use email as their primary mode of collaboration. So I put the exception in there (laughs) that if you're out of touch with what technology is available and what your workforce would prefer to use, then yes, you may suffer some consequences from your people not following the leaders. That's how you get WhatsApp is what happens, (laughs) right? Is they're just going to go off and do their own thing because you're not offering them a viable alternative. I mean, this is two generations now that have grown up on SMS, iMessage, Facebook, texting all the short form collaboration tools and putting them into a threaded asynchronous email system that was built on the paradigm of the inner office memo, which is, again, a thing they've never seen, is ridiculous. And so you you got to own your consequences on that one, in my view. I mean, I'm not saying don't have email. I'm just saying recognize it's not how your people get work done. And have shared agreements on how you work. Absolutely. The broader point is that, but also be smart about what your workforce is going to gravitate towards. Mm -hmm. If you offer them great solutions, they'll use them. And if you're clear about which ones you're going to operate Mm -hmm. on, they'll use them. Yeah. But if you break those two rules, you should expect chaos. Well, and then your third message was rationalize the software. Yes. You've got to, on a regular basis, decide, okay, now we're moving to this, which means you unplug that other thing. We don't want you operating in three or four systems. Yeah. So in our world, we have a lot of companies, customers that are using Teams. Teams is not our internal collaboration platform. So there's zero traffic internally on Teams, but all of our people have Teams because that's how we interact with customers. So what's your internal Slack is our internal. Okay, because we just went to Teams this week. So I'm curious, just the short answer, why Slack versus Teams? Well, Slack was available long before Teams was, and we've been on Slack 
since the beginning of the company. Slack is actually an acronym. So it stands for Searchable Log of All Communication and Knowledge. So our searchable log of communication and knowledge is Slack. Migrating would be painful because we'd lose all of that visibility mm -hmm. into the interactions over the last five years. The other reality is we're a software company and software developers in particular love Slack because Slack has two things going for it that developers love. One, a bunch of integrations into the world that they love like Jira and GitHub and all of that. Mm -hmm. And two, it's a command line interface and developers prefer a command line interface because they're hands-on keyboard all day and they hate mice and they hate graphical user interfaces. And so you'll find even in large corporations, all the software developers are on Slack or on some mm -hmm. knockoff of Slack because that's their preferred mode. And to be clear, nothing wrong with teams. Knowledge workers tend to gravitate to teams. Oh, interesting. Because that's the ecosystem that they want to operate in. It gives them kind of a one-stop shop. Teams at, at one level can be viewed as a portal into the traditional Microsoft tooling. We used to be app-driven, and we would go to Word, and we would go to SharePoint. And what Microsoft has effectively done with Teams is layer a collaboration layer over the top of what used to be apps and are now simply accessible capabilities from within Teams. You're not going to go to Word. You're going to edit a document. You happen to be using Word software to do it, but that's no longer relevant. So it's just a different paradigm. And knowledge workers tend to gravitate to that because it matches more their world that they live in. This feels a lot like pre-mouse when I would type command lines into a screen and then we move to mice and pictures and stuff. Right. And knowledge workers are more than happy with a graphical interface. They prefer it. But people who code for a living definitely do not. It's wasted motion for them. Our typical developer types at 160 words a minute. They don't want to take their hands off the keyboard. It's a waste of time. Everything's so much slower than they can type that it's just frustration for them. Whereas a knowledge worker, they're often looking at documents, reviewing things, scrolling. They're just doing very different things. Mm -hmm. In fact, touch keyboard and those kinds of things. And your developers probably don't have any use for any of that. Right. And an average knowledge worker is going to probably type at 60 to 80 words a minute. Hmm. Let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about hiring and diversity and how do you navigate that in a startup? Yeah, it's interesting. I think you should start with very clear principles around what your objectives are with respect to diversity. And you have to recognize that your ability to execute on those principles is a lot lower in the early stages of a startup. So it definitely should be out there as a guiding light, and you definitely should be doing the things that you can to drive that diversity agenda. And you will have to come to terms with the reality that your ability to fully implement that agenda is really, really hamstrung. I'm thinking about things like if I'm going to hire a COO, I need to interview a range of candidates and they can't all look like me. And you may find that that's not a practical answer. You have 15 people in your company. You know that when you reach the next sales milestone, you're going to have to bring in somebody who does product marketing. You can't hire them before you can hire them. In fact, you don't even know that you can hire them until you get to that point. And then you need them yesterday. And so you find yourself caught in this reality where time is your enemy and it's hard to build diverse slates and get through a process 
you don't even have a talent acquisition person. You're using outside services, right? Or you're bringing in friends and friends and family. Exactly. Kind of. Try again. You don't want to do that necessarily, but sometimes those are the candidates that you have access to. The second factor is there's a perception of a huge amount of risk tied to early stage startups. And the people who are in a position to tolerate that risk are not your typical bell curve of diversity. And that's the reality of things. You find yourselves in this situation where the candidates that show up and are willing to work in an A-round company mm -hmm. have some characteristics that reduce the diversity of it. Nobody wants to talk about this because it doesn't sound good to say, I can't pursue diversity in the early stages. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's harder and it's harder to find candidates and time is not your friend because you're on a mission to execute, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so there are some structural things working against the diversity agenda in the early stages. So then it becomes a matter of recognizing that pivot point where you're now at a point where you can be proactive. And so being able to bring in somebody who's going to manage your talent acquisition process and having it be somebody that you know knows how to drive a diversity okay. agenda and giving them the specific mission that he or she should be focused on building a diverse pipeline of candidates for all the positions mm -hmm. that you know you're going to be hiring over the next year. Don't give me three candidates. Give me 30 and get me a bell curve of diversity, mm -hmm. right? So that we can hire without compromise and get diversity. But your ability to execute on that increases as the maturity of the mm -hmm. company increases. And I think it's naive to not have that conversation around the real structural impediments, even with the best of intentions. And you see it play out all the time. Microsoft's been around for 40 years, 50 years, and still has a problem, profound problem. And they've made progress. But they have all the wherewithal and still have struggled with that issue. You go through the entire tech industry and you find that these realities have been hard to fight against. And I think there's more and more pressure being put appropriately on startups to address mm -hmm. this earlier. But it's not pretend that in the very early stages, it's hard. I just want to be clear, you're not doing the cop out, well, I couldn't do it, so I don't try. No. You're saying we have the principles, we make our best effort, and at a certain scale, it's just harder. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean we haven't had great success. I think last time I checked, 40% of our department leadership positions were all filled by females. That's way better than the average startup. I'm mm -hmm. not saying it's good enough, but yes, we have been able to execute but it does take determined effort and there are structural impediments. And it's just, I wouldn't want somebody saying, I can't do it, so I'm quitting. I'd rather say, admit that there are some headwinds to getting that done in the early stages, but don't let that discourage you because you'll reach a point where those headwinds begin to dissipate and then you've got to invest in it and get to the next level of maturity on it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it sounds like you built in the thinking right out of the chute that we value this and we're going to make every effort to make it happen, recognizing that initially it's harder and we're going to get there because we value it. It's baked into the process. Absolutely. And I think that should be there from day one. And I think you've got to be thinking about that at the board level. You've got to be thinking about that at the mentorship and development level so that when you have the ability to put those processes and structures in place, you're doing it as early as you possibly can.
early stage startups have no luxury of picking their board members. You might be able to pick some advisory board members, but the people who invest the money get a board seat and you have zero control over it, right? But now we're at a point where we can be much more intentional about that. I honestly think it doesn't get talked about enough, right? And I'd rather at least try to have a thoughtful conversation mm -hmm. about the structural impediments and then how you go about moving past those structural impediments as fast as you can and putting mm -hmm. in place processes that allow you to fulfill your intent at a higher and higher degree of efficacy as you grow and have more capability to do so. That shouldn't be a verboten conversation, and it should be a way that we can help earlier stage startups think about this. So then let's shift to talking about space and people. Does your strategy on space and hiring change as you scale and as we are moving into an environment that is more and more virtual, in-person versus virtual, and also headquarters? There's definitely discretion in the decision-making here. What I really want to talk about is intentionality. Have a point of view. I would not say that this is a one-size-fits-all sort of a conversation, but I think for your company, you need to make the decision about what you value in your culture and what are the elements in the environment you create for your company that reinforce that culture. Because if you get the stated culture out of sync with the employee experience, you will not get the culture. Mm -hmm. The experience wins 100% of the time. And I think that's a really important principle. You cannot outperform structure with culture. It doesn't work that way. People respond to the incentives that are in the environment, regardless of what you've put on a piece of paper or hung on a plaque on the wall. And so you have to be thoughtful about, does the employee experience reinforce our stated culture? And if you've made the decision that you're going to move away from an experience and create a different one, then you also have to go back and revisit the culture and adapt that mm -hmm. because you may not be able to have that culture with your new operating model. So if you've gone from fully centralized and we all come to work every day and you've decided we're going fully remote, I can almost promise you there are elements of your culture that were reflected in that employee experience that now can't be replicated in the virtual world. And 80% of communication is nonverbal. 80% of that is lost on a Zoom call. I don't know. I think that has implications, right? Like that can't not have implications. And yet forcing everyone to come back to the office also has implications. As a software company, I have to believe not all of your people want to come to the office every day. That's absolutely true. And we have never required our people to come to the office every day. What we have worked off of is a couple of principles. One, it's our job to create an office environment that people want to do work in and that enables great work, whether that work is collaboration, whether that work is heads down, whether that work is building relationships, uh, whatever it might be. It's our job to create an employee experience in the office that is what they want to be part of. We also support remote work. So if we find the talent that we need remotely, we hire remotely. We make sure that that employee recognizes that they're in control of their own destiny. They can travel in uh, when they think it makes sense and they can spend time in the office when they think it makes sense to do so. The second principle is you are accountable for your performance. And if your performance can be enhanced or will be severely degraded 
by not having interaction with your coworkers and you choose not to interact with your coworkers on a daily basis, you'll own the consequences of that as well. Recognize that you should design the work model that you choose around how you perform at your best. We leave it at the principal level. And by the way, it's exactly how we're handling COVID. Our culture is based on trust. So we don't, in a paternalistic way, tell people what the answer is. I just sent out a note on this today, given the holidays, and I just reminded people with the Omicron variant starting to flow very heavily through you know, the East Coast, and you're starting to see these big upticks in case levels, your holiday plans may involve you interacting significantly outside of your normal network. We trust you to make good decisions about how fast you come back into the office after you've been in a completely different network. I'm not going to tell you what the answer is, but I'm going to remind you of the implications of your decision and then ask you to use good judgment. Do you make tests available for people? We have not made tests available in the office, but if people want to get tested, we have very, very generous health plan that's 100% paid for by the company. And our people have not hesitated if they think they need to test. Mm -hmm. And our people all know that if somebody comes into the office who would prefer that if they're meeting with you, you wear a mask. You wear a mask. You wear a mask, not because it's a mandate, because it's polite, right? You start with this premise of, I treat people with respect. And if somebody, for them, respect looks like, I'd rather we wore a mask because we're in a small conference room, that's just polite. So the old adage of you're only as strong as your weakest link has proven to be true even at mega scale during the pandemic. How do you keep the value chain in balance as you scale so that you aren't wasting money, but focusing on the right growth factor to accelerate your business as fast as you can? Yeah, I think this is such an important principle for startups in particular and for small businesses that are growing. There's this tendency to over-index on the various operating departments of the company based on where you are. When you create that mantra that massively over-indexes on one thing, you often create imbalances across the company and this perception of first and second class citizens that undermines your value chain. I think it starts with the principle that regardless of what somebody does for the company, it's equally important. I used to joke at large companies that every department has a PowerPoint with them in the middle. And it's true. <laughs> every, every department, like, we're the most important cog in the wheel here. Like, it all starts and ends with marketing, or it all starts and ends with sales, or it all starts and ends with engineering. Mm -hmm. And the answer is, even on the face of it, that makes no sense. All of it has to work. And yes, you may need more engineers than you need marketers. But if you don't have sufficient marketing in place, regardless of the engineering, you're not selling much stuff. And if you have too many people who in the software world can close deals, but you don't have people who are generating deals to close, you're wasting money. And so to me, it's about saying the value chain is the value chain. We mm -hmm. understand it. And we're using data to give us insight into where we have bottlenecks and where we may need more capacity and perhaps where we might be over capacity and we'd plan to add another person, we're going to tap the brakes on it until we're at capacity in that. And when you have it viewed as a value chain where all the bubbles are the same size, you can be thoughtful about, no, we're just investing in capacity to keep the entire value chain in balance. I like the shift from departments struggling to validate themselves based on scale 
to value chain that is optimizing company revenue. Or whatever your objective might be, mm -hmm. right? That is a valid objective, but it's certainly not the only one. And sometimes revenue isn't the primary thing you're after, right? But it could be. Certainly profits are you know, in, a, in the startup world. There's mm -hmm. periods of your of your growth where you're specifically not chasing mm -hmm. profitability, right? That's not the indicator for that stage that helps you understand whether or not a company's going to get traction. A good friend of mine gave me a great piece of advice when we started the company and he had exited a successful software company and he said, never confuse having a product with having a company. And this is what he was really getting at. All the pieces that make a company successful have to be in place, regardless of how amazing your product is. If you build a better mousetrap, the world will not be to pass to your door. The world will never find out about you and you mm. will be irrelevant and die in ignominy. <laughs> Right? That's the truth of it. You've got to build a value chain that can mm -hmm. take your product to market, get it to the right customers, all of those things. How do you transition smoothly from the run and gun world of the early startup to putting in place ESG processes without creating bureaucracy and slowing down decision making and execution? Yeah, it's a great question. And we've hit on one dimension of this. Mm -hmm. When you think about sort of DEI and diversity, I think increasingly become a visible piece of mm -hmm. the ESG equation, but it's not the whole equation. There's governance and there's controls and auditability and all of those mm -hmm. things mm -hmm. that come into play. Part of the success of early stage startups that succeed long term is their ability to iterate rapidly, to make decisions rapidly, and have very little parasitic drag on the processes of the company. And as you start to put in place these processes, how do you do it in a way that doesn't slow down your ability to iterate and make decisions quickly? I think there's a real balance there, and you have to be thoughtful in the design of your control systems to ensure that they're not adding this drag on the system mm -hmm. that slows everything down. So if you've created a critical path that involves four people to make a decision and you could have designed it better and it's two, you should do the second one. Be thoughtful about, right, yeah, no, we should all weigh in on that. And there's times where even today I'm specifically saying we're not going to have a meeting of 10 people. We're going to have a meeting of three people and we're going to make the decision and then we'll explain it efficiently to the other seven mm. people that would have been passengers in the room and made a 40-minute meeting, a four-hour meeting. It's being specific about, wow, we should have everybody at the table for that. No, we should not. By the same token, some of the people that weren't in that meeting, making sure that the meetings they should be in, they're in, they're in and the other people aren't. So there's this balancing of that value chain and who actually has the A around kind of like making that decision and letting them over index on being able to make that decision quickly and authoritatively. The other thing that happens when you get this sort of parasitic drag that comes from committee decision making is it's super easy to make one of the classic strategic blunders, which is to blend multiple strategies into one. When I ran strategy at Ford, we always had the principle in place of multiple strategies can work, but the combination of any two is usually a pile of <laughs> because oftentimes those strategies are incompatible. Yeah. So the decision is between the two strategies, not 
okay, how do we make everybody at this table happy by combining elements of multiple strategies into this goo that we're now going to call the plan that has zero chance of success? For listeners who don't know what ESG is, environmental, social, and governance, I just had a great conversation about ESG. And one of the elements that I really appreciated was, like you talked about DEI, it's built into the system out of the gate. So something like sustainability, it's not we're going to pollute the heck out of things. And once we hit a certain amount of money and we can afford to be efficient, then we are. But building a system that is sustainable, like who do we include in meetings, that the premise in the inception of how we build it is appropriate diversity, appropriate environmental, good governance, and those will change as we grow. Yes, and there are ways that even in a software company where we really don't sort of operate in the world of environmental concerns that most people think about. But there are a hundred things that we can do on a day-to-day basis that reinforce what responsibility looks like with respect to the environment. We don't have plastic bottles. Everything's reusable. We make coffee cups with our logo available to everybody every day. There's no paper cups around. And then we just make sure those all get washed in the dishwasher at night. And now you've got sort of a zero footprint model for people and they're all geeked out about how cool the mugs are. And they're like, well, if you like one, take it home, right? Like propagate it into their home. So there's a hundred things that you can do that I think are signal senders around your philosophy, even if your core business processes don't have a huge carbon footprint, right? It can be like just the culture around turning the lights off at night. There's so many little subtle things Mm. that just create a culture of sustainability And then what do we invest in from a charitable standpoint? And what do we encourage our people to volunteer around? And, you know, when there's a neighborhood cleanup in the neighborhood around our office, we volunteer and go out there and help clean up the neighborhood, right? It's all of those things that even in the lowest carbon footprint businesses, you can play your part. We kind of have a shorthand that's a joke. When we look at our electric bills, it would be Jimmy would be proud of you. So Jimmy Carter, (laughs) lights get turned off. To your point, just being responsible does matter. And then the bureaucracy part that as we scale, there are things that we call bureaucratic, but it is good governance to have appropriate KPIs to track performance, to build accountability. I'll bring up a corollary to this that that you just triggered in my mind that I think is super important to this particular topic. We still issue equity to everybody who joins the company. We don't do that at this point because we're compensating people for risk. When you're joining an A round or a B round company, you're offering equity as compensation for risk. Mm -hmm. We're past that. We're a well-funded company. We've got a lot of employees. We've got a ton of runway. You're not joining AWARE as a company because it's a risky proposition. You're joining AWARE because you're passionate about our culture, our product, our people, and the work that you're going to be doing, and you're excited about the potential for you to grow your career. Great. We still make you an owner because there's an ownership mentality that comes with ownership that we think drives right to this ESG point. When somebody's an owner, they think about what they're doing in a different way. Somebody who's an employee walks past trash on the floor because their view is, I'm being paid to do my job. They pay somebody else to pick up the trash. When you're an owner, you don't do that. 
Because you're like, I don't, I don't want us having to pay somebody else to do that job. I'm going to do that job. And by the way, I don't want a company that does that. So I'm going to make sure we aren't that company. Your mindset changes. You can watch it happen. So that's another piece of ESG that people don't think about is how do you create that ownership mentality in your team? Yeah, ESG is much more in-depth when you really delve into how do we create businesses that build value in the world. Right. And it goes back to the very beginning of our conversation today when you're talking about people respond to structures. Ownership's a structure, Mm -hmm. and it incents behavior. And it happens to incent behavior that's very aligned with the larger premises and intent of ESG. Great point. So one last question, and then we need to wrap up. So as you grow, distractions like publicity events, media interviews, and other things become time sucks for key executives. These things seem important and gratifying at moments. Others, they don't seem important and gratifying, (laughs) but can easily distract from the core mission of the company and what leaders need to do most. Again, there has to be an explicit conversation about it. And there has to be a set of principles that the team operates by all the way up to the CEO. Mm -hmm. Uh, Particularly in the startup world, there's this tendency, and in the Midwest, I think it's profound, when a startup starts to do really well, everybody wants to talk to them and understand what they're doing. And I, I get that the intentions are good, but suddenly you can have your key executives going to four luncheons a week and doing three interviews a week just when the company's starting to scale and you need their time, talents, and attention focused on the company's operations and in developing the team, hiring the team, and, and moving people along. And so I think there has to be an intentionality around what are the sorts of events that we're going to invest in and which are the ones that we're going to explicitly say, we would attend this because it would feel good to us, but it doesn't do anything to help our customers or our employees or our company. And being explicit about we're going to apply those criteria so that everybody knows that it's not just for fun. Now, that doesn't mean we don't encourage our executives and our team members to be involved in things that they're passionate about. That's not the point. I'm passionate about education. So to me, my time being spent here today is about how can I be helpful to other people who might be grappling with some of the same questions we've grappled with. I teach at Ohio University for the exact same reason. Education is a thing I'm passionate about. So I invest a measured amount of time in events that are tied to me trying to be helpful to other people. I had the same conversation with our COO this week when I I sent, you know, here are the things I've gotten requests for. Help me think through how do I spend my time and what do I get to say no to? What are you going to hold me to saying no to? It's not going to drive our business forward. Like you, for me, it is tied to my values. You can't deny your values. And so you have to make time for those things you're passionate Mm -hmm. about. Otherwise, you're not being true to yourself. But finding the balance for the moment and the stage that you're in Mm -hmm. as a company and then focusing as much time and attention as you need to on the things that you've already committed to. I always joke about like people who choose to have a child. If anybody knew how hard it was to raise a child, very few people would have a child. But once you've made that decision and you've had a child, it's a commitment you've already made. And most of us live lives where we're coming to terms with the implications of decisions that we made some time ago, but didn't understand the implications when we made them. And having the mental integrity to come to terms with, all right, I already made that decision. 
doing it badly is not an option. I've got to make the time for that. So what else comes off the plate? That's not a commitment, but a preference. And this is where I'll say, and being a resilient leader is required. So what comes off the plate on a regular basis should not be sleep and exercise. Agreed. That's sharpening the saw. That's mm-hmm. fundamental to your capacity. So that does have to happen. For many of us, that's the first default is I'll just sleep less tonight. There's great business models that have been built on the premise that people will make bad decisions on that front. I remember in in my corporate career, every company I worked with had a relationship with the Human Performance Institute down in Florida, which had a whole business model around targeting 40 plus year old executives who are horribly out of shape and stressed out of their minds and helping them figure out how to unwind 25 years of bad habits. Very lucrative. And helpful for people who don't want to have heart attacks by the time they're 60. I'm not saying it's a bad idea to have it. I'm just saying it really illustrates the point you're making. I think HPI was a phenomenal organization, but it illustrates the sad reality that people do not always make great trade-offs. Thank you for having the conversations about things that I think many leaders are asking and aren't getting thoughtful, candid responses I'm happy to be here, and I hope it's not perceived as risky. I hope it's perceived as helpful. So thank you for the conversation and the opportunity to kind of share some real practical experience. For anyone who wants to contact you or to learn about AWARE, how would they reach you? Well, so our website is awarehq.com. We have a product that helps large companies and medium-sized companies that have broad collaboration platforms manage that data in a responsible way and keep their workplace safe for their employees and simultaneously gives them insight into ways they can better support their employees and run their companies. To get in touch with me personally, I'm Greg at AwareHQ.com. And on LinkedIn? I think it's just Greg Moran. And I'm the Chief Operating Officer of AWARE, so I should pop up pretty early on in your search if you're looking for me. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for investing your precious time and listening to the conversation with Greg and I. I trust you will find something in it that was helpful. Mm-hmm.